Welcome to another Curbside Consult. I'm Mike Mee, an editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. On today's episode, we'll be discussing community-acquired pneumonia with Dr. Anna Thorner. She is an associate physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and she's a deputy editor of Infectious Diseases and co-director of editorial projects at UpToDate. She's also an author of a 2014 NEJM review article on community-acquired pneumonia, so I can think of no better expert to chat with us today. Pneumonia has been a commonly encountered condition since the early days of medicine. Sir William Osler called it the old man's friend, which reflected its high prevalence and mortality among elderly patients. Now we have much better treatments for it, but it remains a leading cause of death. In addition to covering the basics of diagnosis and treatment, we will cover the more perplexing roles of procalcitonin and glucocorticoids. Hello, Anna. Thank you and welcome to our luxurious New England Journal recording studio, which is actually just a 50-square-foot closet. Today, we're going to be talking about pneumonia. Some of our listeners might be wondering, what's the big deal? You know, pneumonia is something that's so common, and what's the point of having a whole podcast about pneumonia? So pneumonia is an incredibly common condition, and infection in particular, as you pointed out, It's actually the most common infectious cause of death in the world, one of the leading causes of death in the United States. So, you know, it's really important to give patients optimal care in order to improve outcomes. There are some complexities to both the diagnosis and the management. It's not a monolithic disease. It can be caused by many different pathogens. There's an extensive differential of infectious and non-infectious causes. So it's really important to understand the best approach to optimize the diagnosis and to have a good approach to empiric therapy, which most patients require when they first present. Then if a diagnosis is established, it really helps with narrowing or de-escalating antimicrobial therapy, which is incredibly important for optimal care for individual patients and also for larger antimicrobial stewardship. I completely agree with you. Because of how common it is, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement in terms of giving the right antibiotic to the right patient at the right time. So on the topic of diagnosis, I think anybody who spent any time on the inpatient setting knows that not everything that walks in the door billed as a pneumonia is actually a bacterial infection of the lungs. Let's say a 76-year-old lady who has dementia is coming in from her nursing home. She's been lethargic for the past two to three days. People at the nursing home thinks that she may have been having more of a cough than her usual, maybe a little bit of sputum production, but they aren't sure. And because she's just a little bit off from her baseline cognition, they want her to be evaluated. And in the ED, she doesn't have a frank fever, but her white count is a little bit elevated. And they do a chest x-ray. There's maybe a little bit of hazy infiltrates in the bilateral lower lobes. Now, in terms of your approach to the diagnosis of pneumonia, what are some of the things that you would think of or would recommend as A, the common mimics of pneumonia, and B, what are some of the important things for you to consider or for everyone to consider when approaching these patients and thinking about Are they the right person that I should be giving antibiotics to, which obviously have its harms? 
The patient that you described certainly has some features that are suggestive of pneumonia, but it's not the most striking case in that she can't really tell you she has some cognitive issues. She can't really tell you what's bothering her, and the nursing home staff isn't really sure, but they think maybe they've noticed some cough and some sputum production. She doesn't have a fever, which is not uncommon in elderly patients. So older patients have a blunted immune response, so it can be difficult to sort out whether a patient like this has an infection like pneumonia or whether they have something non-infectious like congestive heart failure or another reason to have some pulmonary edema. Of course, you didn't tell me about hypoxia, but if a patient presented with hypoxia and shortness of breath, tachypnea, be a low-grade fever or maybe no fever, you would also think about a pulmonary embolism. And then, of course, lung cancer is on the differential. A patient has an infiltrate and maybe has a cough. Could it be lung cancer? She doesn't have a known past history that you told me about, an abnormal chest X-ray at baseline. So I think we can presume that the hazy infiltrates could represent pneumonia. Um, I haven't heard anything about a cardiac history, so that makes congestive heart failure somewhat uh, less likely. You know, admitting this patient and both trying to diagnose the cause of pneumonia more definitively and also beginning empiric therapy would be very appropriate. In terms of the diagnostic tests that we have, so we have our physical exam and we have our chest x-ray. What else can we use to give us a better sense of whether there's an infection? You know, people have been throwing out this idea of procalcitonin recently. It's really a hot topic. Can you tell us a little bit more about, is it ready for prime time? And in what situations can we think about it? To answer your question about whether procalcitonin is ready for prime time, I think the answer is maybe. Part of its utility depends on whether it has been adopted at a clinician's institution, because a key issue is the timeliness of the result. Some, but not all, hospitals have adopted it as an in-house test. To give a little bit of background, procalcitonin is released by parenchymal cells in the setting of systemic inflammation, and particularly in response to bacterial toxins. It's typically elevated in the setting of bacterial pneumonia um, and other invasive bacterial infections, but not elevated in the setting of viral upper or lower respiratory tract infections. However, it doesn't have perfect accuracy, so it really should be used only as an adjunct to clinical judgment. It has been studied to determine whether it can serve as an adjunct to the decision of whether to start or stop antibiotics, and it appears to be most reliable for helping with early discontinuation of antibiotics for patients in whom the diagnosis of bacterial pneumonia is not clear. In a 2017 Cochrane individual patient data meta-analysis of adults with acute respiratory infections that compared procalcitonin-guided therapy with usual care, its use was associated with no increase in treatment failure. It was also associated with a reduction in antibiotic exposure by about two days and a lower risk of antibiotic-related adverse effects. A mortality benefit was also seen in the patients who were seen in the emergency room or in the hospital. 
So I think that procalcitonin is most useful when a clinician suspects that a patient does not have bacterial pneumonia, and this suspicion is confirmed by a low procalcitonin, which would be a level less than 0.25 micrograms per liter. And the result is even more convincing if the level is very low, such as less than 0.1 micrograms per liter. In many cases, antibacterial therapies started when the patient presents for care, as delay in therapy has been associated with worse outcomes. Um, but in some of these patients, the diagnosis of bacterial pneumonia is unlikely, such as in patients in whom an alternate diagnosis is established, such as congestive heart failure. So in such a patient, a low procalcitonin helps support the decision to stop antibiotics before completing a full course for pneumonia. However, when a clinician strongly suspects bacterial pneumonia, he or she should not withhold antibiotics if the procalcitonin is low. One reason for a false negative result in a patient with bacterial pneumonia is if it is checked too early. Um, and it can, of course, be repeated to see if it goes up. There are also multiple causes of false positive results, including major trauma, burns, and pancreatitis. And a significant drop in procalcitonin can also support the decision to stop antibiotics, provided that the patient has responded clinically and has received an adequate course of antibiotics. Great. So it sounds like there's two main uses of procalcitonin right now. One is the decision whether to start antibiotics, and then once you've already started the antibiotic, how the patient's procalcitonin changes can be useful for determining whether to stop the antibiotics earlier than otherwise if we didn't have other things to guide us as to how to um, make that decision. Yes, but I think that in real life it is used most often to help stop antibiotics because when the first when the patient first presents, the clinician may not have all the data in terms of you know having an alternate diagnosis at that time and being able to see how the patient does clinically over the first few hours uh, following presentation. So I think it's most useful when antibiotics are started early in some of those patients. It's started in the absence of bacterial pneumonia, and as that becomes more clear, it can support early discontinuation. Mm -hmm. um, so let's change up the, the case a little bit. So let's say if a different patient comes in, also elderly woman, now she's coming from a nursing home with a fever, temp 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Her respiratory rate is fast, 30 breaths per minute. Her heart rate is also fast, about 100 beats per minute. She's got borderline oxygen saturation at 90%, and she's got some findings on lung exam. This time around, we have a radiograph that shows some definite infiltrates in both lower lobes. So let's get her to treatment. One of the things that was always really confusing to me as a medical student was all these names and acronyms of different treatments and antibiotics therapies. And I think in the more recent guidelines, it's been simplified down to a few different regimens. But you know, maybe we can go through some of these first-line recommended treatments, talk a little bit about what is it about them that, that makes them the first-line recommendations. Absolutely. Confining the discussion for right now to community-acquired pneumonia, the patient you described clearly needs admission. In terms of antibiotics for such a patient, a patient requiring admission who comes from a nursing home, you know, you really have to think about what the most likely cause of the pneumonia is. Before we get into bacterial causes, I will remind everyone 
that at certain times of year, you really have to think of influenza because influenza can absolutely cause pneumonia itself, but it also can increase the risk of a secondary bacterial pneumonia that can be very rapidly progressive and very severe. And the organisms we worry about most in that case are Staph aureus and Streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus. So during influenza season, I would certainly do influenza testing immediately optimally with a PCR test, which is much more sensitive than the rapid antigen tests. And if a rapid antigen test uh, is performed and is negative, I would proceed to a PCR. In terms of bacterial coverage, going back to the early 20th century, pneumococcus was the classic cause of community-acquired pneumonia, and it was responsible for at least 95% of cases. So it was really Striking. Probably why they call it a pneumococcus. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, of course, those were the days when there weren't antibiotics. So it was very likely that patients were coughing up sputum and you could, you know, do a gram stain and do a culture. Things have really changed dramatically. And in particular, the incidence of pneumococcal pneumonia has dropped dramatically, especially in the United States. And I don't think that all the reasons for that are fully understood, but it is pretty well established that the use of universal vaccination in infants with the conjugate vaccine, which is currently PCV13, has resulted in such profound herd immunity that there is benefit to the entire population, including adults and including elderly adults. So I think that has had a huge impact. But also, you know, for decades, there's been pneumococcal vaccination of of certain increased risk adults with the polysaccharide vaccine or PPSV23. And then more recently, also with the conjugate vaccine, which was formerly seven valent PCV7 and is now PCV13. Another contributor to the reduced incidence of pneumococcal pneumonia in adults in certain countries, such as the United States, is the reduction in rates of cigarette smoking. So where does that leave us? Currently, pneumococcus remains the most common bacterial cause of pneumonia, but it's still only detected in about 5 to 15 percent of cases in the U.S. In fact, in over half of cases, we simply don't know the pathogen. But because pneumococcus can cause such severe pneumonia, we always want to choose a regimen with reliable activity against it. And a study that illustrates these points was the EPIC study, which was a prospective population-based active surveillance study that was done by the CDC that included over 2,000 adults requiring admission for pneumonia for CAP. And this study used specialized techniques for detecting a cause. And despite looking aggressively, an etiology was not identified in 62% of cases. One possible reason for this low yield is that many of the patients had already received antibiotics when a sputum culture was collected, which is really like real life. Often the patient can't produce um, sputum initially or in some cases at all. In terms of treating this patient, My preference would be to give her a drug like ceftriaxone, which would cover pneumococcus, and then it would also cover many gram-negative rods, not the highly resistant gram-negative rods like pseudomonas. But I think if she doesn't have any risk factors for pseudomonas, then it would be very reasonable to stick to an anti-pneumococcal beta-lactam. But then she needs another agent to cover atypical bacteria. 
atypical bacteria are actually a kind of heterogeneous group of different bacteria. They include Mycoplasma pneumoniae, Legionella species, and some chlamydia species like chlamydia pneumoniae and less commonly chlamydia sitaki. The drugs that we have that cover atypical organisms do a pretty good job of covering all of those organisms. So you can choose either a macrolide like azithromycin. And in fact, I would stop there and say you've already selected ceftriaxone. Let's do azithromycin. It's fairly well tolerated and that's a good choice. The alternative in a patient like this would be to do monotherapy with a fluoroquinolone. And on the plus side, fluoroquinolones cover pneumococcus quite well. They also have good gram-negative coverage, and then they also have good atypical coverage. However, I really like to reserve fluoroquinolones for when I really need them. As all the listeners will already know, fluoroquinolones have excellent bioavailability. They're really a wonderful choice when you need to give a patient oral therapy. For example, they're ready to go home and they really do need intensive therapy to complete the course for pneumonia. A quinolone is a reasonable option. In this patient, I would really try to minimize that because, you know, she has dementia and quinolones can cause central nervous system toxicity. And they also have other major toxicities. They can prolong the QT interval. Um, They can lead to tendinopathy or tendinitis. Any antibiotic can increase the risk of Clostridium difficile, but fluoroquinolones seem to be on the list of the worst offenders. So I would really try to reserve that for when you really need it. Of course, a drug like levofloxacin also has pretty good activity against pseudomonas. Um, So again, I'd like to save it for when I really feel like I need it for that. So in this patient, again, ceftriaxone and azithromycin would be a great regimen. There's no reason to give the azithromycin parenterally if the patient is taking well orally. It's also very bioavailable. There have been some concerns about an increased risk of sudden death and QT prolongation with macrolides like azithromycin, but this patient will be monitored in the hospital. It's certainly much less of a QT prolonging agent than quinolones. If you cannot give azithromycin, Another agent that can be used to target atypical bacteria is doxycycline. As with azithromycin, you would give it in combination with a beta-lactam like ceftriaxone. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, I do want to bring up the question of sometimes in the inpatient setting, there's utility in getting a a pneumococcal urinary antigen or the Legionella urinary antigen. And um, I've always been a little bit confused as to when is the appropriate time to get it, when is it not. It seems like every test I do order for Legionella is always negative. (laughs) Am I ordering it too frequently? Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think any patient who requires admission deserves to have a basic evaluation. And then some patients, depending on risk factors or clinical features, deserve a more extensive evaluation. So I would personally try to obtain a sputum sample in any patient admitted with pneumonia. If it's possible to get it before antibiotics are started, that is optimal um, as the yield drops once you've started antibiotics. The same is true for blood cultures. I would send two sets of blood cultures in any patient admitted with pneumonia. And then in terms of these other tests, the Legionella urinary antigen test is really incredibly helpful when it is positive. And in fact, you won't typically grow Legionella on a usual sputum 
specimen. Um, so if someone was severely ill and intubated, you could send a bronchoalveolar lavage specimen for you know a special Legionella culture that where it's incubated on a, a special medium that will enhance its growth. But the urinary antigen test, you know, for Legionella pneumophila serogroup 1, um, which is responsible for about 90% of cases of Legionella pneumonia, the sensitivity is about 80%, and it's very specific at about 97 to 100%. So again, if it's positive, it's incredibly helpful. You know, Legionella has been associated with some specific outbreaks in, you know, the original outbreak of the Legionnaires in the hotel in Philadelphia in the late 70s. More recently, there was there were several clusters in New York City. There have been outbreaks related to cruise ships. But, you know, Legionella is around and patients can get it without a clear risk factor. So I'm a big proponent of sending that test. And I also think pneumococcal urinary antigen testing can be helpful just because I know many patients can't bring up sputum and, you know, many patients won't have positive blood culture. So if it increases your chance of making a diagnosis, that's great. The sensitivity of pneumococcal urinary antigen testing is about 70 to 90 percent with a specificity of around 80 to 100 percent. One caveat is that just being colonized with streptococcus pneumoniae can cause the urinary antigen test to be positive. And then there are newer tests like PCR. And again, you have to be very skeptical of a positive result because it could represent colonization. And then a drawback to the pneumococcal urinary antigen test is even if it is positive, it doesn't help you figure out which antibiotic you can rely on. So with pneumococcus, you do worry, especially about macrolide resistance. It's very likely that pneumococcus would be susceptible to, you know, cephalosporins and to fluoroquinolones, but you certainly can't trust a macrolide like azithromycin. Legionella, on the other hand, is usually susceptible to both fluoroquinolones like levofloxacin or ciprofloxacin and also to macrolides. But if I made the diagnosis of Legionella, I would favor a fluoroquinolone. So another test that can be very useful if your institution has it is the multiplex PCR. This test has been approved for, for the evaluation of pneumonia, and it tests for the most common bacterial pathogens, including pneumococcus and the various atypical causes of pneumonia, but it also tests for an array of viruses. So it can be very helpful because you might be able to detect a virus that makes you less concerned about bacteria. I will say, though, that there are some patients who have more than one pathogen detected. So a patient may have you know, a virus detected and bacteria detected, and then it's a, a decision. Does the patient need to continue bacterial therapy? And I think it sort of depends what the virus is and what the bacteria is, but often you end up giving an empiric course for bacterial pneumonia. Some experts favor a more minimalist approach to making a microbiologic diagnosis. And the IDSA ATS guidelines state that diagnostic testing is optional for ward patients, but recommend testing such as sputum, gram stain and culture, blood cultures, and the more specialized tests we discussed for all ICU patients, as well as patients with certain risk factors such as alcohol abuse. Um, and certainly if a clinician decides to only do some tests, I would encourage more complete testing for the patients who are sickest. Excellent. So for this patient, you know, once upon a time, because she is coming in from a nursing home, she would have gotten potentially a very different set of antibiotics up front because of 
the concern that when you have repeated healthcare exposure, you're at a higher risk for getting drug-resistant organisms that can cause that can be that can be the cause of pneumonia. So, I almost hesitate to introduce this concept since it seems like it's fading away. But maybe we can talk a little bit about the now defunct term of healthcare-associated pneumonia and where that term came from and why is it gone and where we're we going with this still very important idea of risk-stratifying patients for drug resistance, uh, which is only becoming a bigger and bigger issue. So the category of healthcare-associated pneumonia was first included in guidelines in 2005. It was included as a category in the hospital-acquired pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia and HCAP guidelines from the American Thoracic Society and Infectious Disease Society of America. The reason that HCAP was added as a category and included with HAP and VAP was that there was concern that anyone who had any exposure to the healthcare environment was at an increased risk for multidrug-resistant bacteria. The category of HCAP included patients who resided in a long-term care facility, such as a nursing home, hemodialysis patients, patients who'd had recent admission to hospital, and I believe patients who receiving you know, wound care. So these patients were now suddenly treated much more broadly, especially for more resistant gram-negative rods and in some cases for MRSA. But the accumulated data to date suggests that many of those patients didn't actually need such broad coverage, um, and there hasn't been evidence of improved outcomes with that more aggressive, broader approach. And as you know, we keep selecting for resistance, the more we use or overuse antibiotics, the pendulum has really swung the other way to try to figure out which patients don't need such broad coverage. So with the most recent version of the HAP and VAP guidelines, the category of HCAP was eliminated. And my understanding is that the updated CAP or community-acquired pneumonia guidelines that are currently you know, being put together will address HCAP. But I think the most important point is the clinician really needs to think about the individual patient and consider, does this individual patient have risk factors for a resistant organism? So, you know, certainly you could live in a nursing home and have a resistant organism, but you would not just say nursing home resistance done. You would think about the patient. Does the patient have bronchiectasis that could increase the risk of pseudomonas? Does the patient have COPD and has had multiple flares of COPD and therefore has been on lots of different antibiotics and has received steroids. So patients like that, you would want to treat for more resistant organisms. And then, of course, immunocompromised hosts, um, like patients who are neutropenic or patients with cancer, transplant patients, patients who've received other immunosuppressive drugs are potentially at increased risk for resistant organisms, especially if they've had more healthcare exposure and antibiotic exposure. Mm-hmm. And um, as a medical student, I was always taught this principle that when it comes to infectious disease, it's um, not just the organism, but it's also the host factor that interplays whether or not an infection ensues. So sounds like, you know, some things that may be helpful for making this judgment of is drug resistance likely or is the downside of missing drug resistance more severe are maybe an immune-compromised host or repeated antibiotics exposure, uh, et cetera. 
Um, are there any other clinical factors that come to your mind as being important to yeah. keep in mind when we decide should they get broader coverage or? Yeah. I think we've gone over the highlights of the patient-specific factors with the important exception of, you know, what is the patient's prior microbiology and what kinds of infections have they had in the past? So I would certainly look at their record and see, you know, is this patient colonized with ESBL, E. coli, or Klebsiella? Is this patient someone from a part of the world where there are much higher rates of resistance? So is the patient, did the patient just come here from Greece or did the patient just come here from India where the rates of very resistant gram-negative rods are much higher? Mm -hmm. Um, And also the clinician really needs to think about the local rates of resistance. So not just the individual patient, but what's going on at my hospital? What's going on in the larger community? in terms of resistance rates. And most hospitals will publish an antibiogram that is specific for the hospital. And that can usually be found somewhere on the website that the clinicians have access to. And some hospitals even provide even more granular data about certain units in the hospital, like rates in the intensive care unit mm-hmm. or rates in the you know hospital as a whole or rates in the cancer and transplant patients in the hospital. So that can be really helpful mm-hmm. for looking and, and deciding, does this patient require broader coverage? Yeah, I definitely did not appreciate the importance of understanding local epidemiology when I was a a younger resident, and this data should be f- available at pretty much any institution. And I think w- we would encourage all the trainees to become familiar with that. And I think local uh, resistance pattern is so important because it has influenced a little bit, the, I believe, the variation in guideline recommendations from country to country because they factor in their own country's prevalence of drug resistance. And some countries may feel that a narrow spectrum of treatment is okay because they just don't have that much drug resistance compared to a different place. So let's drill down a little bit into the two dreaded organisms that we always talk about, MRSA and Pseudomonas. So let's start with MRSA. What is the typical presentation of a MRSA pneumonia and how can we decide that that's what's going on? And what are the features of MRSA pneumonia that makes us really worry about it and look for it and treat it aggressively. Sure. So when community-acquired MRSA emerged, there were actually cases of very rapidly progressive pneumonia. Some of them were patients who initially had influenza and then had a very rapid course of MRSA pneumonia. MRSA is an organism to be feared and respected. It can cause a necrotizing pneumonia, cavitary pneumonia. It can, you know, spread hematogenously and cause a metastatic infection at different sites. So if someone is really severely ill with septic shock, with respiratory failure, it's very reasonable to initially treat for MRSA as part of your regimen. Certainly if you get a gram stain and you see gram-positive cocciine clusters, I would certainly, you know, regardless of the severity, even someone with a less severe illness, I would want to cover MRSA initially. If the patient's known to be colonized, that would increase the chance that this is MRSA. Again, recent influenza-like illness is definitely concerning for MRSA pneumonia. And then some of these radiographic findings, if there is evidence that the pneumonia is necrotizing or cavitary, or if there is any evidence of an empyema. And then there there are certain risk groups for colonization, and that includes patients with end-stage renal disease, 
men who have sex with men, people who live in crowded conditions or are incarcerated, injection drug users, and then participants in contact sports. One thing that's really helpful, though, is that many ID specialists like to say MRSA doesn't hide. So if you get a good sputum specimen and you don't see gram-positive cocci in clusters on the on the gram stain, especially if it doesn't grow on the culture, you're on pretty firm ground narrowing and not continuing to treat MRSA pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Great. So... We've covered MRSA, now Pseudomonas, this other dreaded bug. Again, are there anything that we can look out for, any clinical characteristics, any signs and symptoms suggest that we would need to cover for Pseudomonas? Yeah. First, I would take a step back and think about the risk factors for Pseudomonas. So the classic ones are structural lung abnormalities like bronchiectasis. So cystic fibrosis is the most obvious example of that. But bronchiectasis, for any reason, can lead to colonization with Pseudomonas and consequently more invasive infection like pneumonia with Pseudomonas. Another major risk factor is frequent COPD exacerbations requiring glucocorticoids and antibiotics. And then, of course, we worry about pseudomonas in neutropenic patients who have pneumonia commonly as one of the complications of their period of neutropenia. As with MRSA, if you get a really good quality sputum specimen, gram-negative rods are not usually very difficult to find, but the problem is that many patients simply can't produce a good sputum specimen. So I think you have to go by the combination of the individual patient's risk factors, the severity of the illness. If it's more severe, you would want to cover empirically initially. And also the resistance pattern. You know, can you get away with the narrowest drug? So for example, I would try to limit carbapenem use like imipenem or meropenem and try to save it for when it's really needed because it's incredibly broad. And actually in the last few years, at least in my area, you can actually trust agents like cefepime and ceftazidime in terms of their anti-pseudomonal activity more than you can trust imipenem or meropenem. So it's not a free ride um, aside from the selection for Mm -hmm. resistance, aside from the risk of C. diff. It's not a a free ticket to covering everything the way that, you know, clinicians might have thought of carbapenems back a couple of decades ago. Yeah, I was surprised too uh, when I was on service recently at a local community hospital where I just happened to look up the local antibiogram and found that the cefepime actually had very good pseudomonas coverage rates uh, compared to some of the more broad antibiotics that I would have thought would have had better coverage rates. So uh, again, a plug for looking up your own local antibiogram and picking the narrow spectrum one that does the job that you're trying to accomplish. And so We'll try to wrap up by talking a little bit about what to do when you have the patient, you put them on good antibiotic therapy already, and now you're trying to address the question of, well, how long do I have to treat my patient? At what point can I maybe even de-escalate if I started off with vancomycin for MRSA and I gave them cefepime for broad gram-negative coverage, and I also have them on azithromycin for the atypicals? Mm-hmm. The current recommendation from the IDSA and ATS is that 
patients should receive a minimum of five days of antibiotics for bacterial community-acquired pneumonia. And patients should also be afebrile for 48 to 72 hours before stopping antibiotics and not have more than one sign of clinical instability at the time that antibiotics are stopped. And those signs include tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypotension. For patients who improve rapidly on antibiotics, the total duration of therapy can be as short as five to seven days. There are certain pathogens that you do want to treat longer, and MRSA is one of them. And you really need to look and make sure you're not missing metastatic sites of infection with MRSA. With Pseudomonas, the most recent HAP and VAP guidelines actually recommend seven days for HAP and VAP, regardless of pathogen. But I think many clinicians would, you know, would consider in a patient with Pseudomonas whether a longer course is necessary. As I've said earlier, really aggressive diagnostic testing up front is really, really important because it will really help you with de-escalation when you get to this point. Again, if you've gotten a good sputum specimen and you haven't grown MRSA and you haven't grown Pseudomonas, then you could potentially you know, focus on the easier to treat, less resistant organisms at that point. But again, it really will depend on the patient's clinical course. Mm-hmm. The one last thing that I feel like we're obligated to talk about is steroids. It seems to be on everybody's mind these days, and I haven't had a lot of experience giving it because it just didn't seem the evidence was quite there during my training. Is that on the horizon? Should we consider using it more, wait for more data? What do you think? Yeah, so... There was actually a meta-analysis that was published in Annals of Internal Medicine that looked at the use of adjunctive steroids in patients with community-acquired pneumonia. It showed a modest mortality benefit in hospitalized patients with community-acquired pneumonia. And so some experts have moved towards recommending adjunctive steroids, at least in the sickest patients. So Mm. a caveat of the study is that anyone at risk of adverse effects from steroids were excluded from the study. So we don't really have a good feel for, you know, whether a short course of steroids is reasonably safe in these patients. But of course, if someone had something like a recent upper GI bleed or they, you know, had psychiatric issues where you'd be really worried about giving them steroids that could exacerbate those issues, then you wouldn't necessarily want to give steroids. In terms of the infections, I think one of the challenges in studying pneumonia is that there are so many different potential causes of pneumonia and perhaps steroids are beneficial for some and perhaps they're harmful for some. And it just hasn't been possible to do a study where every single person gets a microbiologic diagnosis and you can really sort out which pathogens it's beneficial for versus harmful for. There are two pathogens I want to mention for which there is some evidence that steroids may be harmful. One is influenza and the other is aspergillus. So You know, influenza, of course, can happen in anyone. Aspergillus as a cause of pneumonia, I would certainly worry more in immunocompromised patients, such as neutropenic patients, stem cell transplant recipients with graft-versus-host disease who might be on a lot of steroids. So if I was suspicious of one of those pathogens, I don't think I would use steroids. But I think if it seems like a garden variety bacterial pneumonia in a patient without a lot of risk factors for adverse effects from 
steroids and the patient is severely ill, then I think it would be reasonable to give steroids. And of course, the goal is to reduce the patient's own inflammatory response. And there are some data that patients with a high CRP may be the ones most likely to benefit from steroids. So if you know, if, if the patient falls into that category, that might be one more thing going in favor of trying steroids. I would reserve steroids for the most severely ill patients because those are the ones who are at highest risk of poor outcomes and so that you'd expect a higher absolute risk reduction Mm -hmm. um, in poor outcomes from the steroids. Mm -hmm. And in general, to get a sense of the severity, um, are these type of patients ICU level patients or are they more on the higher end of the risk stratification tools like a CURB-65 or a pneumonia severity index? Sure. So I would personally only consider steroids in someone admitted to the intensive care unit. I just think that the most severely ill patients, meaning that small category of patients requiring ICU-level care, are the ones most likely to derive benefit. So that also translates to having the highest pneumonia severity index score Mm -hmm. um, or the highest CURB-65 score. All right, great. So let's just conclude by talking a little bit about the take-home points from our discussion today. So we first covered the presentation and making the diagnosis. And I think the thing that I want to take home is that Pursuing a microbiological diagnosis should be the primary goal, especially for a patient who's particularly ill. And then the next important step is to identify the right antibiotic for the right bug. And we do want to be cognizant of antibiotic stewardship. So this is where I think there's no substitute for good clinical judgment and um, experience, but you want to look at the patient in front of you, get a sense of severity, get a sense of risk factors for drug resistance, pick the narrow spectrum antibiotics, and give it a tincture of time to see if they improve. Or if not, then change up your antibiotics regimen. As far as some of the more novel things that we can do for community acquired pneumonia, it sounds like they're not quite ready for prime time. Maybe procalcinones are useful, but you can't really hang your hat on an absolute value yet. And Maybe steroids can help patients who have very severe pneumonia, but the data doesn't right, quite support really widespread use of it. Are there anything else you want to remind our listeners of? Sure. So one really important factor, and one thing that makes the field of infectious disease so fun, is getting a really good history for epidemiologic exposures. Um, And that's really important in pneumonia because there are so many different pathogens that can potentially cause pneumonia and that may be related to a specific exposure. So some examples are a patient who lives in or has visited the Arabian Peninsula and now comes in with pneumonia, you would really want to think about Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, which emerged in that part of the world in 2012 and seems to be associated with camel exposure and continues to cause sporadic cases of pneumonia and also has caused multiple separate hospital-based outbreaks, especially in Saudi Arabia. Similarly, if a patient you know, lives in China or has recently visited China, there is an emerging influenza virus a few years ago now called H7N9 influenza. So you would certainly want to think about that if there is that kind of exposure. In the United States, there have actually been 
for the last few years, an H3N2 variant influenza virus that has been associated with visiting swine fairs. So often in the summer, there are clusters of infections of people who either work at swine fairs or who visited for recreation. And then, of course, there are geographically restricted causes of pneumonia, such as coccidioidomycosis in the U.S. Southwest. There are certain areas that are endemic for histoplasmosis. You know, we often forget about fungi as a possible cause of pneumonia, but they can certainly cause pneumonia with the right exposure. Another pathogen that I would be remiss in not mentioning is tuberculosis. Um, And it's something that in the developed world we often forget in a patient who has has been in an area with a significant inf- incidence of TB, you know, it really should be considered. And also patients who've received certain types of immunosuppression, so specifically a tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor. These drugs like infliximab or etanercept have been very strongly associated with tuberculosis and all patients should actually undergo testing for latent TB before they start one of these agents. It's actually one more reason not to rush to give a fluoroquinolone because fluoroquinolones have activity against mycobacterium tuberculosis. And in the setting of tuberculosis, you wouldn't want to give a quinolone alone because it will likely become resistant if it's not used as part of a combination regimen. Mm -hmm. That's a great point, Uh, one that I didn't learn until towards later in my training. All right. Well, thank you, Anna, so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you coming and uh, sharing with us some really interesting thoughts about pneumonia. And I hope our listeners um, found it as interesting as I did. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our guide on pneumonia in the rotation prep section on infectious diseases for more information at resident360.nejm.org. I want to thank again our expert today, Dr. Anna Thorner. Our production team at the NEJM includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, Dr. Karen Sokol Gutierrez, Dr. Lisa Cauley, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hemenvik. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. Please tell us what you think by emailing us at resident360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at NEJMRes360. Once again, I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine.